Day, September 12th. So I'd like to make a few announcements. Again, for those of you that have been listening for a while, you know that we have a generous matching grant that has been given to California Prison Focus. And so we are asking folks, please come to our website, go to www.prisons.org and make a donation to uh, match that grant, it's $25,000, and that's matching grant all the way up until the end of December 2019. Um, but the days, of course, are going by, so please make your donation and make sure to, so you're helping us to get this newspaper out to um, to those of us out here and also the folks inside. So um, it is a... Well, the matching grant, of course, will be funding California Prison Focus. And one of the main things that comes out of California Prison Focus is our publication, Prison Focus Newspaper. And this is a tool, an organizing tool, an educational tool, a unifying tool. And it is integral to um, the those that are imprisoned and their family members and anybody else that is attached to them that loves them um, to help um, in their situation help them to come together um, and find the solutions to um, enact change in their situation um, and the reason I'm putting it that way also is that um, we've got a great show today and we're going to be talking about um, the barriers to parole that CDC small r, small r for because is that there really is very, very little rehabilitation that's happening on the inside. So I want to read um, a couple of quotes as to why, if you don't believe me, why this matching grant and donating to California Prison Focus and making sure that this newspaper uh, gets out, I'd like to read a couple of quotes from some folks on the inside. It says, I have received Prison Focus, issue 58, spring 2019. It has influenced me at a whole new level. Solidarity is a word I haven't heard or seen in a long time. It reminded me and woke an old soul within me. No matter my life sentences and being a child raised through incarceration by my elders and peers, I beat the DA referral. I was not prosecuted due to insufficient evidence. One battle won, yet another ahead. One battle at a time. I am only one man, but now, after reading your paper, I don't feel alone on these battlefields, with pen and paper as my weapons of choice. Thank you for your solidarity. Cesar. And then we also have, over the past decade, I have literally watched as convicts whose CDCR told the public were hardened beyond redemption or repair struggle and succeed to become productive citizens of society, while prison officials become the very criminals we were once portrayed to be. Anonymous. Lastly, as you can see, reform doesn't work. We can all call every politician and beg them to support every bill. It still don't seem to stop these institutions whom are ongoingly and effectively cutting us off from any relief. There are people dying in prison who deserve a second chance, but the bias and prejudice side of society does not believe in fairness or that there are deserving people in here. Enoch. So with that last one, I really, 
I'd like to prove him wrong, people. I, I hope that we can work together out here in what those inside call the free world to not only to build a sense of hope and cooperation and collaboration and creativity out here and how we can be supportive, but doing that so that those on the inside are not feeling like there is a sense of, of hopelessness or that we don't care. Because I know, and if we take a moment to just think or just be quiet for a moment, that we do care, actually. And if we allow ourselves to care, what's possible? So one of the thing one of the things about this program here and the prison focused newspaper is we're about changing the narrative. And part of changing the narrative means that we have to be willing to trust one another and we have to be willing to hear other voices and trust that that there is actually another uh, another voice, another another narrative that's happening. We don't have to just outsource our um, uh, uh, ways that we think about uh, people that have been imprisoned, which actually, um, according to the state and according to this country and our constitution, people that have been convicted of a crime are actually enslaved. And we can decide whether that's okay with us or not. And I'm encouraging all of us to say, no, no, it's not okay. It is not okay that in 2019 that we are still living under the 13th Amendment that says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the parties shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. What does that do to our thinking if we just stop remembering that the Constitution legalizes slavery for, as a punishment for people that are convicted of a crime? And we know who is disproportionately convicted of crimes. So that is also a huge discussion. But again, I really just want it to come around to there are ways that we can support one another and that we can build um, a movement and support the prisoners human rights movement by coming together and taking a moment to, real to say, do we care or do we not care? And I hope that we do. And I hope that you will go to our website and make donation. I also hope that you will go to our website, which is www.prisons.org and read some of our um, past newspapers. So today we um, are going to be reading, so first, sorry, we are going to be reading from our latest issue, which just came out yesterday, issue 59. It is chock full of amazing information and um, from the folks on the inside um, as well as others. So again, amazing um, educational tool, organizational tool, and a unifying tool because the men and women on the inside um, pass this around and they use it, um, again, as a tool for their uh, benefit. Um, but um, I, I decided to do this show 
um, because I did get um, a piece of writing from somebody on the inside who I do uh, regular correspondence with, uh, Joka Hashima Jinsai, who, um, again, is um, an activist and organizer on the inside. And he's been imprisoned for, for over 30 years. Um, and I, somewhere in the 20 years um, in solitary confinement, tortured by solitary confinement. Remember, the UN, um, the UN Human Rights Council has deemed solitary confinement torture after 15 days. So um, I wanted to read a piece by him that um, is talking about the issue of parole and how CDCR's uh, tactics are undermining parole and denying people um, uh, a parole dates, which they should be getting. And we're also going to be reading some other letters um, about parole um, from our issue number 59. So here we go. This is from Joga Hashima Jinsai. Um, and the CDCR is engaged in a practice in concert with the Board of Parole Hearings designed to deny parole to life-term prisoners who not only pose no threat to society or themselves, but in the instance of imprisoned activists such as Abdul Olubala Shakur or myself, actually have a decades-long record of serving our communities and seeking to improve society for all of us. That practice is the use of state-paid psychologists to prepare psych evaluations for parole consideration hearings. The document above, which he's referring to um, uh, the youth parole hearings guidelines, in the, uh, you can go to the CDCR uh, website for that. The document above comes from the guiding regulations for youth offender parole considerations hearings. In the document, the law clearly states not only is great weight to be given to a youth's diminished capacity, but psychologists preparing these evaluations must consider any growth or subsequent maturation of the individual under consideration. They do not. In Abdul's case, as, much as, as most of you may know, he has been active in the struggle for progressive social change and the eradication of the black criminal mentality for well over 30 years with multiple books, numerous articles, and the development of multiple social activism and community development organizations such as the George Jackson University. He was the originator of the new African Revolutionary Nationalist Collective Think Tank, the Asada Alert Network, tasked with preventing the abduction, abuse, and murder of black children, women, and elders who are at disproportionate risk of such when compared with other demographics, the Free Speech Society, and I could go on and on. When he sought to share this, as well as the business interests he's developed, such as organic paradise and wealthy imports, instead of just doing the most rudimentary research to confirm the validity of these assertions, the, psycho the psychologist automatically assumed the brother was lying and characterized his claim as a, quote, grandiose sense of his own self-worth, unquote. Quoted again, lack of empathy for others, unquote. This brother spent the last 30 years of his life doing nothing else but thinking of ways to help others. Then the psychologist went on to, to say, irresponsibility and other negative platitudes which have no basis in reality. When you read the report, one constantly finds oneself asking, where is he getting this absurd uh, crap? Among prisoners 
who are 50 years or older who have served 25 years or more, there is a zero, sorry, there is a 0.01% recidivism rate, virtually non-existent. Yet, when making a risk assessment for violent recidivism on the brother, he cited among our age demographic his risk of reoffending was high, and among all male prisoners, it was average. Why is all this so significant? It's significant because a grant or denial of parole hangs primarily on a single factor, the psychological evaluation. As the psychologist says, so does your life. These evaluations last for 45 minutes, maximum an hour, where they ask you some 200 prearranged questions. From this 45 minutes to an hour, these state-paid psychologists seek to quantify and qualify some 30 years of your life, all while intentionally failing to follow the guidelines of the law. In just a year or so, I will be subjected to the same process, with no doubt like results, as I have a similar, at times overlapping, history of service to our communities and body of work. Every similarly situated prisoner with a life term will be subjected to this patently corrupt process. An independent fund should be set up, sorry, an independent fund should be set aside to pay for impartial and competent psychologists to prepare these reports objectively and according to the guidelines set forth in the law. The prisoner class that men such as Abdul and myself belong to is fairly small, dedicated to changing this world for the better, which includes abolishing the prison industrial slave complex, of which the BOPH is a part, Board of Parole Hearings, as we know it. We, if released, pose a threat only to those institutions which have traditionally and intentionally oppressed the poor, disenfranchised, and underdeveloped, a threat which is socio-political, not military, and that is the reason this and other character assassinations are employed, sorry, character assassins are employed by the state to ensure men like us do not get out. The only way to address this contradiction is by seeking to abolish this particular practice and replace it with one more fair and legal. I ask you all to join me in confirming this practice and actively speaking out, organizing, and mobilizing to change it. Some of the greatest political, social, cultural, and principled minds of our times are languishing away in prisons across this nation. The state knows we pose no threat to public safety but we do pose a threat to the continued maintenance of the exploitative and repressive relationships at the root of the contradictions in all of our communities. I hope we can count on your collective insight and activism until we win or don't lose. So that's what he sent, and of course, rightly so, I agreed to put this out onto the airwaves. It is also on um, the blog, our blog page at uh, www.prisons.org. So you can go to our website and look there for our blog and this piece is, uh, is posted there. And then only a day later, and this is what I was telling you all about the power of this newspaper and and the power of what the, the folks on the inside that we are working with and that I hope all of you will start to uh, build a motivation and, a, and an inspiration to work with us as well. 
um, is that uh, they're working on the inside to do things. So a day later, this is what uh, Joka Hashima Jinsai sent out to us through his amendthe13th.org campaign. I've been brainstorming with a few of the brothers here on possible modifications to the process of psych evaluations, and we believe one of the first demands should be that all board psych evaluations be recorded and transcribed. As it stands, they are not, and the only record of what was imparted or said is whatever the psychologist includes. What do y'all think? Well, I think that that's a fantastic idea, and I hope all of you do too. Then the beauty here as well is that this is leadership that's coming from the inside. They are working to create the solutions that are necessary to enact this change. It is, it is incumbent upon us out here to align with them and to, uh, to support them because they ultimately know what's happening to them. They ultimately are the ones that should have a say in what needs to change and how. And we have to have the humbleness and hopefully the, the, uh, the, the, the care and the drive to stand behind them and work with them and hear what they have to say so that we can be a part of making this change happen with them. So, um, I didn't even know that these the, um, these evaluations were not recorded and transcribed so that the person that's being evaluated can actually look it over and how about their lawyer um, so again it's 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 a way that's it's a tactic that CDCR has to to keep um, people from getting their parole their parole um, their parole heard. So um, one of the things that I wanted also to read um, to you, sorry, I'm pretty, I'm, uh, excuse me for just a moment, because I realized that I need to take a breath. Um, this is very, very serious. We have people, I hope you heard that we're talking 30 years and more of incarceration. This is abominable. This should not be happening. I read somewhere that like Germany and Norway, they have an average two-year incarceration time. What are we doing? We really have to ask ourselves. We really have to take a moment and pause and think to ourselves, what are we doing? What are we allowing? What are we How are we outsourcing our care of people who we want to be accountable for the quote crimes that they've committed. What are we? What is this system doing with our hard-earned resources of time, money, and energy that we're incarcerating people at this rate and then denying them their their chance to be accountable, make whatever shifts and changes and rehabilitations and restorative aspects to their being and then deny them parole that's that's insane that's what we're saying that this system is supposed to do if we've decided that we're going to have prisons which i 
disagree with. I would really love to see a world without prisons, but we have them. They're not working. They're hurting and destroying people and continually separating families and destroying communities and, and hurting people. So, um, let's think about these things. Let's take a moment and think about what it is that we are really allowing. There are way more of us who can make the decision to care than there are the people that are trying to uphold this system of, of control and dehumanization. Um, so I wanted to give you all also some information. So when Hashima was talking about all of this amazing community work um, to uplift the communities that um, Abdullah Olubala Shakur and Joka Shiman Jinsai and others are doing, and we want them out here to be able to do that work out here. Um, it's true, and I would, I'm inviting you to also go to their websites. So go to amendthe13th.org and check out the work that these guys are doing. Read the strategic release, if, if nothing else. This is an amazing document, um, and I would like to read some of it in just a minute, but I also want you to go to narncollective.org dot wordpress dot com that's narn n a r n collective dot wordpress dot com and again look at the work that this psychologist said um uh abdul was having grandiose um ideas about himself and go there and look at the work that they're doing and see for yourself. So we want these people, we want people to have their parole and we want them out here in our communities. And again, get to know these people and part of doing that is by, yes, listening to this radio program, going to our website and um, seeing about the different events and just be inspired, please. So here's a little bit of the strategic release. Um, greetings, sisters and brothers. As the national agenda of Amend the 13th continues to find resonance with the people, we see great enthusiasm for its major components, such as support for the Millions for Prisoners March, the Autonomous Infrastructure Mission, and the abolition, and abolition. But of equal importance is the public support for the concept of strategic release. Intentional stability. What has fueled the legacy of legal slavery in America from the Jim Crow era to the present day is unstable and intentionally underdeveloped communities. One of the chief contributors to this instability is systematic recidivism and lack of effective leadership in the process of community development, reclamation, and stability. U.S. policies of mass incarceration of fractured family units have exacerbated generational poverty, have facilitated the school-to-prison pipeline, and have solidified social containment policies for new Africans, Latinos, and the poor into concrete barriers to social progress no less real than the prison walls which hold so many. A new progressive mentality. But this process of systemic dehumanization also produces its opposite. 
new men and women who have been transformed by their experiences with the productive system into genuine social progressives, the very antithesis to this structural hate. Such new men and women have given their very lives to transforming the criminal mentality into a progressive mentality and transforming their communities into bastions of social progress and stability. The unfortunate reality is the U.S. is an attrition-based society, one that prizes retribution and punishment over restorative justice, one that values the conquest of resistance while viewing mercy as weakness. Though there is overwhelming evidence that these draconian measures do not diminish, but instead actually fuel criminal criminalization, American policymakers continue to capitulate to the growth model of the prison industrial slave complex. It was this social reality which led new African political activists to develop the concept of strategic release, the highest threshold of rehabilitation. Under strategic release, a prisoner's grant of parole, pardon, or clemency is based on the positive impact he or she has had on her, their community and society during his or her imprisonment, and the even greater positive impact they will have on society as a whole if released. Consideration for strategic release is based on a subject's work product and proven record of service to the community and society and a formal commitment to continue to work in the service of the community and the people into perpetuity once released. So I'm going to leave it at there, and I encourage you to go to the amendthe13th.org and read the rest of the strategic release. Um, in just a moment, we are going to take a music break, um, and we're going to have a Kim Pollock, our editor, call in, and she is also going to read something from issue number 59. Um, but I do, again, I encourage you, please visit our website and, and understand what's really happening to the people behind bars, because this work that they are doing is being undermined by CDCR and their tactics um, and denying people their parole to be able to get out. People should not be denied one, two, three, ten times. If you remember a couple of weeks ago I had um, with us here uh, William Palmer, Soul Brother Number 9, um, uh, speaking eloquently about his experience and what he's doing out here now, ten times he was denied parole. This is egregious um, behavior on CDCR's part. So we'll be back at you in a minute um, after this music break.
Okay, thanks for that wonderful uh, music by Stevie Wonder. And now we have Kim on the line, our editor of the newspaper, Prison Focus. Kim, are you there? Yes. Okay. Hi, yes. Hi. Is it possible to take down that background music or the background? Yes. Okay, fantastic. Oh, yeah, that'll be a lot better. Great. Good morning. So glad to have you here, Kim. Good morning. All right. Good to be here. Yeah. Fantastic. So it sounds like you've got a couple of letters that you would like to share with our listening audience from our new I issue fifty nine. Like yeah, it's a great um, letter that was written that's published in our most recent paper, um, and it's really it's it's very well. I'll let everyone hear for themselves. Um, it's called No Way Out by Steve Drown, who's in Soledad State Prison right now. It says, toward the end of 2006, two prisoners incarcerated at the California State Prison Solano attempted suicide. One was successful. The other had to be airlifted to a special health care facility due to the extent of his self-inflicted injuries, both were life-term prisoners who had just completed or had pending parole consideration hearings before the then BPT, now known as the BPH, Board of Parole Hearing. How common is this occurrence within the state's other prisons, and why? At some point, the lifer can reach the place of feeling hopeless with no way out. The pine box syndrome comes to mind as one is repeatedly bombarded with the words, the only way these lifers will ever get out of prison will be in a pine box by Governor Gray Davis, ringing in your head day in and day out. These feelings compound themselves until it becomes despair, generated by the belief that you have been deserted by all, very sad. Your family, friends, the system. The question most often asked by families are, why will they not grant you parole? Have you been lying to us all along? Trust is gone due to these continuous denials. He has experienced years and years of broken promises by trusted people in power who told him, Stay clean and out of trouble. Program and make something out of your life in a positive way. And when your time comes, you will be free to rejoin society and your family. In my case, having served over 40 years behind these walls, bars, and electric fences, I'm still waiting for them to make good on their end. The courts sentenced lifers to terms set by law, which the judges and juries felt were just punishment. Politicians, victims' rights groups, and the Correctional Officers' Union have pushed their own special and separate agenda, which is, the, is in direct contrast to a court's action. At what expense to taxpayers? When a lifer appears before the BPT, he is given specific guidelines that he is expected to complete in order to be considered suitable for parole. 
At the time, these guidelines are made by the BPT members who are appointed by the governor. The lifer is given the impression that if he successfully completes the requirements and develops a complete understanding of insight and remorse for the crimes he committed, he will be found suitable for parole with an expected release forthcoming. However, after the prison prisoner completes all the requirements asked of him, he is then either continually found unsuitable for parole or has his parole date revoked for reasons that can never be corrected or improved upon, the crime. Remember, the facts of the crime can never be changed. There are no do-overs, just a choice to make a personal change and maybe someday make a difference. This is all part of the rehabilitative process. The desire or impulse within the lifer to improve is being taken away by the actions of the governor and the administration. Multiple governors over the years have said, I'm going to let them do their job, the, the BPH. Yet, in a majority of instances, the suitability find, findings are reversed. And may I add, though it's better, it's still happening, you know, today, obviously. Um, whatever happened to justice or following the dictates of the law, Whatever happened to the aspect and function of rehabilitation within the system? Whatever happened to acknowledging successful self-rehabilitation and the completion of good deeds while incarcerated? Whatever happened to positive programming and work within the system to better yourself? These questions need to be considered while not minimizing the crime in, that, in any manner. Statistics have continuously demonstrated that the rate for first crime, first time murder offenders across the nation to reoffend after release is below 1%, while other violent crimes reoffend at a rate approximately 85%. Their acts result in victims having to live with what's been done to them for the rest of their lives. One can spend hours on the topic of corrections and the multiple problems within. However, that's not the reason for this missive. It is rather to ask a very important and implicating question. How many find themselves in this dilemma where the only way out is to take one's life? And more importantly, why? Life in and of itself is much too short to end it so abruptly, yet it's long enough to recover from its many adversities. People have recovered from far worse than incarceration. So, I want to let that sink in for a second, but I, I do have a comment, um, which, well, actually, maybe I'll mention this a little bit later today, but I just want to add an announcement at the very end. Do you want to, we still have time, Sarah, and new day for Sarah to read a letter as well? Of course. But or do you want to talk about that letter first a little bit, or should we just move on and read another? I know it's very... It's intense. It kind of speaks for itself. It's just the letter, really. It does. It does. And, yeah, I, I think we should, again, for everybody that's listening out there, and understand part of our listening audience is not just the free world. Our, 
this program goes out to those that are also on the inside and are actually experiencing this. And so um, if you are hearing us now, just know that we are those people that do care and we want to be here to help in changing this. And I really do encourage people again, take a moment and think to yourself, even just selfishly, is this how you would want to be treated if you had committed some crime that got you in this situation? Would you want your child, your loved one, to be treated like this? Is this okay for you? Because if it's not, it shouldn't be okay for anybody else either. Okay. So that's what I have to say. Um, yeah, Sarah, how you doing this morning? Hi. Hi, Nubay. Good morning. All right, fantastic. Good this morning. is great. All right, so another one of our CPFers here to read another letter. This is fantastic. Okay, the space is yours, Sarah. Thanks, Nubay. This is an anonymous letter that was published in our latest issue 59 that just came out, and it is is also regarding um, a Board of Parole hearing denial, um, despite all the things that this person had in place in hopes to receive parole. So the title of this letter is 35 years completed at 60-something years old. When is enough enough? I went to the Board of Parole hearings and was denied three years. I can go back for another hearing in 12 to 18 months, which I will get into. But first, this is a super great idea for Prison Focus Radio. Perfect. CPF. Live interviews and updates, broadcasts, current stories, new law changes, interpretations for prisoners, etc. I want to give you an insight on my recent border parole hearing. I was denied three years behind a 115, which is a rule violation write-up, for refusing a cellmate. My dump truck attorney appointed by Sacramento Board of Parole Hearings pulled me out for an interview and said he only has a few minutes because he had 20 more to interview for a Board of Parole hearing. I said, you're not visiting me for five minutes, so he stayed 20 minutes. He does nothing in the hearing as for objecting to anything. These commissioners, they drill you like it's an interrogation of questioning and twisting of words. For the 115, I was told by my attorney I would receive three or a five-year denial before I even went into the hearing. I have all these support letters, certificates, etc. 40 support letters and chronos from attorneys, teachers, a priest, my kids, and my mom not to mention my paralegal certificate, multiple college courses and programs, and vocational accomplishments at Pelican Bay. I have reentry program acceptance letters with full support to help me get back into society. I have a very detailed support letter from my sister who has an office space for me to open my paralegal business and a job for me as a legal consultant until I get on my feet. Plus, I was going to live with her and be in reentry programs and enroll in San Francisco State 
to complete my six credits. The board commissioners were overly impressed by attorney support letters and my education accomplishments and being a published author. All was set ready for the board to parole me, and I'm still here because of a bogus 115. I read about memory recall and communication in Terry A. Cooper's expert report about the psychological harm caused by prolonged solitary confinement. In part, it reads, there is an impressive number of serious symptoms that they suffered while confined in solitary confinement, including anxiety reaching the level of panic, distorted thinking reaching the level of paranoia, memory and concentration problems, etc. I never thought that I was affected by shoe syndrome, but in my board hearing, because I flashed back to shoe interrogations and mental deprivations and to hear to debrief appears to be a trigger that shuts me down, long-term confinement is affecting my performance in my board hearing. Now I've seen that commissioners don't care how long I was in the shoe. My daughter is going to do research, and I'm ordering a book on memory recall. I need to enhance my communication skills to update my talents in that area. I was asked if I was a gang member and stuff like that, and my file states after a thorough investigation that I am not involved with any gangs. I have no safety concerns. It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. The district attorney is on the conference phone listening, and at the end he gets to give his spell. Same as in a courtroom, anti-prisoners. He makes the crime look like it just happened and puts his own twist on the crime. Once he said it was gang-related, nowhere in my transcript does it say that it was a gang-related crime. How can we win freedom like that? We had to fight to help change the injustice of prison life with segregation. Now we need to change how the Board of Parole hearings do business going by their own laws, unchecked. I have my habeas corpus against the denial of transfer from the Department Review Board in the First District Appellate Court of Appeals. And, of course, I will be appealing the Board of Parole decision. You can write an article on what I'm talking about and encourage others to write about their experience of how commissioners treat them, the questions asked, etc. In solidarity, Anonymous. Thank you so much for reading that, Sarah. Yes, of course. So for myself, because I always have something to say, um, again, this is a platform for putting those voices forward of those that are most impacted by the abuses of CDCR and this system. And he has solutions. So let's heed those solutions. What he's asking for is correct. Let's get more of these testimonials about what's happening and put it together. That's what we do at California Prison Focus. That's our work. And we need more people on board to help with this so that they know inside that we got them, we got their backs, we want them out. We don't Want, we don't want them to be treated like this. And can we trust them? And so, 
again, I just, I really encourage the listening audience, um, really, to come from your heart. Take a moment and ask yourself if this is okay. And educate yourself more. Um, if you're hurting by what you're hearing, that's good. I want people to be moved by this. So go to our website, subscribe to this newspaper, get it for yourself, get it to people on the inside if you know folks on the inside so that we can work together to change this. And um, so go to www.prisons.org. Uh, please play around there. Look at our new issue, 59. Um, there, it, it's, again, it's just full of more um, information. We are focusing on uh, parole denials, um, but there are also the merging of yards, uh, putting people in danger, uh, medical neglect. There are so um, there. There is a lot that's happening that um, we have the opportunity to expose here, um, and we need more exposure. And I don't want to take away from the amazing work that is also be doing in a positive way as well. And part of that positive work is in reading these letters, they're speaking out. They are, ask, they are coming up with ideas about how to change it and asking for our support. That is, I was almost going to use it, that is radical. That is radical self-care. That is, is facing this system of white supremacist, capitalist, state repression square in the face. So w please be a part of helping this change. And one of the things that I um, wanted to add to all of this and kind of end with um, is another article um, is the, the failure should not be an option. This is grading the parole release systems of all 50 states. So I'm going to start with the highest grade of all 50 states on this list is the highest grade, excuse me, is a B minus for parole release systems, a B minus. That's the highest, and only one state has it, and that's Wyoming. So I'm sad to say that California, unfortunately, has an F minus. How do you have an F minus? I mean, it's just, so let's just let that sink in for a minute. Okay. But still, what I'm going to read are just some of the highlights of, of this article, because what they're, they're talking about is this needs to change. Failure should not be an option when we are talking about people's lives. Um, so they came up with some ideas around what should happen. Same thing like uh, Hashima did with the um, recording and transcribing. 
Okay, so I'm going to read these off, and then we are going to end the show with some, um, also some positive music. Um, the board. New day. Yes. Before you start, can I throw in a quick announcement? Please. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so the, this is for the folks inside, or if you know somebody, have a loved one or friend inside who you know is preparing for a poll. I just want to um, mention again that. California Prison Focus has a special parole edition, um, issue 54, that you can request from us. Um, and in it, there, one of the one things I specifically wanted to mention is, is um, something called advice for prisoners and their supporters regarding parole, a board hearing, psychological evaluation, um, including special advice for Ashter members and people who've been in solitary. It was published by the Prisoner Hunger Strike Solidarity Coalition. And it has, well, actually, the whole issue has a lot of really good information if you're preparing for a parole. Um, uh, I want folks to know that you exist. And, all right. So Fantastic. Yes. Issue 54. Get it. www.prisons.org. Fantastic. Yes. Okay. So here are the highlights because these are the things that are clearly not happening. These are the things that we want to happen. The board should mandate face-to-face -face parole hearings. Few people hire someone or rent a room to someone or buy a house from someone without first sitting down and having a conversation. Another one. There should exist a process by which someone seeking release can challenge incorrect information that the board may use to deny parole. Obvious. Prosecutors should not be permitted to weigh in on the parole process. Survivors of violent crime should not be allowed to be a part of the parole decision process. The parole process should be about judging transformation, but survivors have little evidence as to whether an individual has changed, having not seen them for years. A truly restorative collaboration would ask survivors of crime for their help in crafting transformative in-prison program for individuals convicted of violent crimes, but would not allow their testimony to influ influence parole decisions. Another one, supportive testimony should be encouraged. Anyone who has had a day-to-day -day interaction with the incarcerated person and anyone who intends to offer tangible support to the person seeking parole should be allowed to testify in person. It is obvious that a person with a substance abuse problem would benefit from a ride to AA meetings and why a parole board would benefit from an in-person inquiry into that volunteer's dedication. Um, and then one of the, and then uh, let's see, every individual in prison should be eligible for parole. Each state should have presumptive parole. Parole board members should not use subjective criteria to deny parole. No more than a year should elapse between a parole denial and a subsequent review. And preparation. If you get one shot at freedom, shouldn't the state help you get ready? Yes, indeed. I want to thank you all for joining us this week. Um, I want to thank Ed for um, helping with the engineering as I'm getting myself trained up here. Thank you, Kim and Sarah, for coming on and um, sharing with the listeners these amazing words from these very strong people. And that'll be our show. We're going out with uh, Stevie Wonder's Visions. Have a beautiful, beautiful week. We love and support you.
in our minds. 